invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Habakkuk chapter 6. Everybody say Habakkuk. Now let me help you out. It's in between Daniel and Joel. Okay? I uh, was trying to mark my Bible yesterday and I really struggled. I kept flipping right past it. But it's right between Daniel and Joel, Habakkuk chapter 6. We're going to, we're going to get there in just a moment. But uh, we began a, a series. Uh, this is uh, part three now. So week number four. I'm sorry, this is part four. So week number four, we began a series entitled Signs, Seasons, and the Second Coming. And in light of everything that's happening in 2020 and the reality and the realization that things are just weird right now and, and there's got to be more to it than just the fact that things are different. We're saying, God, what are you up to? So far in this series, we've discovered that there have been seasons of time since the time of Christ. Jesus said that in the last days, these things, and we see some of those signs, some of those signs have uh, become more rapid uh, in just the last uh, decade or a couple of decades in our nation. We told you that uh, in 1948, when uh, Israel became a nation, uh, God began to move everything on this earth into a new level of intensity toward the second coming of Christ. Now, I do not know dates, times. I will not even go there or attempt to mark days or times that Christ will return. I simply, as a teacher of God's Word, want us to look at what does God's Word say about the signs? How does God work in seasons? And what does He say about the second coming? Because whether it's tomorrow or another few years, He is coming. That is the part of the gospel that is still to be fulfilled is that Christ will return and establish his kingdom for a thousand years here on the earth before he creates then a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll get into, we may go that far eventually in this series, I'm not sure. But um, last week we talked about, well, we talked about Israel two weeks ago and how Israel, keep your eyes on Israel because Israel is the focal point of God when it comes to his seasons of dealing with people on earth and dealing with the second coming of Christ. So we keep our eyes on Israel. So then last week we, uh, we looked into God's word and we didn't find the United States of America actually referenced in the end time events. And that's a big question a lot of people have is where, how does such a superpower as the United States of America not end up being identifiable among those nations uh, during the end times? And so we talked about that now. I know that that was a heavy, heavy message. I could tell because there was a period of about 10 minutes I didn't hear one person breathe in this room. I'm not sure I breathed during part of that. And so I attempted, but I was in a hurry because I had preached so long already, to bring it back into the understanding that there is this uh, blessed hope that the church has. And that is the rapturing of the church, the, the catching up of the church. But I rushed through that so fast in order to kind of move us forward after having preached uh, real long. Um, so I may not have left you with a whole lot of hope. So this morning, we're going to talk about revival. And in, and in light of everything we discovered last week about what would be the possibilities of why the United States would not be clearly identifiable in the end times, I want you to understand something from the history of God working with Israel and, and on this earth since the time of Christ, that God brings revivals. 
God brings very sovereign moments in the workings and dealings of mankind. Very supernatural activity of God. When things seem about as dark as they can get. And I'm believing that there are signs right now that we are in a season that God is preparing another great awakening. So what do we need? Where do we find ourselves with that? So we're going to talk this morning about revival time. So I want to read you the words of a, of a ministry colleague. And I quote. He says, look at how the glory is departing us. You that are aged can remember 50 years ago when the churches were in their glory. Is there not a sad decay of that glory today? What a change there has been. Time was when the churches were beautiful. Many people were converted and willingly declared what God had done for their souls. And there were added to the churches daily such as should be saved. But conversions have become rare in this day. Look into the pulpits and see if there is such glory as there once was. The glory is gone. The special design of providence in this country seems to be now over. We may weep to think about it as such. Man, that resonates with me. Does that resonate with you this morning? When you look into this present season and generation in which we live, does it not seem that the church has, has lost its, the brilliance of the light of influence that we have? Does it not seem that this is a season, a cultural time in which, and I told you this back in the previous series, if my people will humble themselves and pray, that, that for many church can... They can take it or leave it, that there's no, no need for it. It was interesting that prior to COVID, I told, in fact, I told you back in February in that series that we, we were seeing churches across the, the nation were in such decline attendance-wise. Then we had to shut down for, what, 13 weeks, and everybody started complaining and griping about church being shut down, and they weren't going anyway, and they haven't come back. So I can't figure out, other than the fact there's just this idea that people operate in our generation, church is insignificant. Maybe we've, maybe we've been so powerless that that's the case. But you know those words. Those words were actually spoken by a pastor from New England by the name of Increase Mather. Those words were spoken of the condition of the church in the colonies at that time of our early settlers in 1702. But yet as we read and heard those words, it seems so much a reality of where we are today. With that, there's hope. There's hope. God is a God who brings revival to his church. I've told you the hope of the world is Jesus, and the hope of Jesus is his church, and Jesus isn't done yet, so there's hope for his church. 
So revival. So many places in the scriptures we could go, but Habakkuk chapter 6. Just want to read three verses, and I just, I just want us to, to get this sense and this understanding that, that God moves where his people start to hunger for him, almost a desperation for him. Did I say Habakkuk? You know what? I think we, yeah, we go to Habakkuk later. I am so sorry. Hosea. Thank you, Deacon Robert. There goes my Christmas gift this year, doesn't it? No, you're right. See, I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken, so I don't know. Um, Hosea. Habakkuk is later. I'm so sorry. I just like saying Habakkuk, actually. Say it with me. Habakkuk. I mean, it's just fun. It just kind of rolls through the throat right there. Anyway, so Hosea. Now, Hosea is right after Daniel and right before Joel. Some of you were looking like, what? Okay, I'm so sorry, man. Hosea. Here we go. You ready? Oh, we're not going to read it out loud together. I'm going to read it for you. Here we go. Verse 1, Hosea chapter 6. So let me set it real quick. So um, Hosea is prophesying to Israel who has been um, overthrown by the Assyrians. Because of Israel's rebellion, this is one of those seasons which God brings correction and rebuke to his people who he dearly loves and has great purpose for and is in covenant with, but they have rejected him and rebelled against him. So has come the Assyrian army. God has lifted his hand and the Assyrian army has come in and uh, taken them captive. Now Hosea is writing to encourage them. Watch the words. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, oh, but he'll bind up our wounds. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll restore us. In other words, God's going to work with us in this. God is going to bring us back into his blessing and favor. Let us, verse 3, acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Now, that's a whole connotation into a teaching on the, the Holy Spirit and, the, and, and how God moves through the Holy Spirit. But, but what he's saying right there is that just as sure as the sun comes up, God's going to revive us. You see the hope in that? God every year brings these rains that we need for our harvest. And yes, we sinned against him. But when we repent, we know that through repentance, he will restore us. That day's coming. Let us return to him now that that, may, that day may come. But there's hope. God is going to revive us. I believe there is hope for the church of Jesus Christ in our generation. I'm not even talking future generation right now. I'm talking about our generation. So God has a plan. Those words spoken in 1702 that I read to you from Increase Mather in that message were a part of a stirring that began a revival in the colonies and among the early settlers of our nation. It's called the, the Great Awakening or the, the First Great Awakening. So for a few moments, I'm going to give us a little history of revival. Because I want you to be encouraged to see the faithfulness of God that as sure as the sun comes up, he's a God who revives and restores. So we have one history here in, the, in our states, in our United States, called the Great Awakening. It was from a period of the 1720s into the early 1740s. In the early 1720s, God began a revival in a small church 
in New Jersey. And in that small church of praying people, a revival broke out that eventually began to move across the 13 colonies and the early settlers. It greatly affected young people. Watch two things that are characteristic of every one of these revivals, prayer and young people. I asked God about that. Why are young people always so instrumental? You know what he told me yesterday in my prayer time? Because they're always ready for change. They're always ready for change. You try to take an old 50-year-something guy like me, prove it first. I ain't going to move. Been this way all my life. I'm going to stay this way. No. Young people, they're ready for a change. If, if they don't find it in, 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 in God and in the church, then they create their own change. We'll get to the hippie movement in a little bit. That'll be a lot of fun for some of you who, who were part of that. The Great Awakening. Young people in prayer. Out of this first Great Awakening came a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Some of you, if you've read any church history, you know the name Jonathan Edwards. He's most notable for one sermon that he preached on July the 8th of 1741. The title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, Jonathan Edwards, when he preached this message, and it was pretty much manuscript, he didn't pound the pulpit from what's reported. He didn't shout and snort and spit. He just spoke softly and simply. The essence of the message, sinners in the hands of an angry God, was the painting of a picture of how precariously lost people are near their, their end in hell. As though precariously the unconverted are dangling just above the fires of hell. Now in a simple fashion, he spoke about hell. Conviction moved on that congregation of people on that day in such a way that there was great commotion, there was great wailing. I'm not talking about just tears. We're talking wailing and crying and, and, and screaming and, and, and fear. Uh, some screaming in the agony that as though they could feel the flames of hell at their feet. Grown men were gripping the bench in front of them. Grown men were, were grabbing the poles to the room that were holding the roof up and, and clinging to it as though they feared they might be slipping down into that very fire of hell. Now, this is a guy, man, he's not thumping and all that kind of stuff. He's just speaking and speaking truth. And the Holy Spirit came in on that body of people. This great awakening swept other preachers and congregations up in the fire of the Holy Spirit. It even had political influence. It is believed by many Christian scholars and historians that this great awakening was instrumental in uh, the American Revolution and, and particularly God's intervention in bringing victory to the colonies in the American Revolution as well as having an, an influence on the writing of and eventually the signing of the Declaration of Independence, though that would come some years later. Individuals who were a part of that process were individuals who were caught up in that first great awakening. When spiritual decline was met with spiritual hunger, God sent 
a great awakening. Things began to wane over a period of time as they do. We saw it with Israel through the Old Testament. They're up and they're down and then they're up and they're down and they're up and they're down and they, they get up and they rebel against God when everything's going good. They rely on self and they get in trouble and then God has to correct them and then he revives them and everything goes great and then it's just this cycle. I think most of us have probably been there, right? We've encountered God a few times and walked away. Not necessarily walked away, but forgotten God sometimes. So it happens. So then in the early 1800s, we have what is called by many the Great Second Awakening. In the First Great Awakening, it's, a, it's a reported that about 50% of the population of the colonies at that time were attending weekly church services. By the late 1790s, church attendance was down to 10%. Now, from a pastor, that's huge because our church attendances in our nation right now are alarming at 33% of our population attending church on a regular basis. 10% is huge. John Marshall, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in the early 1800s, said this, The church is too far gone to ever be redeemed again. But God had a different plan. However, at the same time, the church was undergoing a lot of persecution. Not, not so much persecution as much as rejection. The reason attendance was down was people didn't see the need for church. The French, the atheist French philosopher Voltaire, uh, very vocal about uh, the influence of church I love one of his statements that uh, uh, he said, 100 years from now, the only Bibles you will find will be, in it will be antiquities or found in museums. And I love the fact that, and it's historically validated, that 100 years after he made that statement, his printing presses where he printed his vain philosophies was being used by the American Bible Society to print Bibles to be shipped across Europe. Yeah. Right? But he's, he's, he's promoting all this, this atheism, this anti-God, and it even winds its influence up here in the United States of America, and it affects young people. Young people start believing that and start buying into much of that, and it begins to shape the culture of our young people. It's sweeping across campuses, great uh, uh, atheism and, and rejection of God across campuses uh, of colleges in the early uh, 1800s, but there was a group of students at Ham Hampton Sydney College in Virginia that had a hunger for God. So they locked themselves in a room and they just began to pray. And they prayed regularly for several weeks. And within about three to four weeks, an incredible revival broke out on their campus. Eventually, within a three month period of time, over half of the student body came to Christ for forgiveness of their sin and salvation. Small prayer meeting, where? With a group of young people. This revival then began to spread to other campuses, and there was a great move of God on our campuses in the early 1800s. Out of this second awakening, great awakening, came what are known as the circuit riders. Circuit riders were preachers who, uh, there were so many churches now popping up out of the revival, there weren't enough trained individuals to pastor and lead the churches, so those that were 
educated, trained, and prepared were assigned regions that might have five or six or more churches in it. And they were called circuit riders because they would ride to one church and preach and pastor those people. And then that afternoon, they'd ride to another church and preach and pastor to those people. And then they would ride to another. Circuit riders, most notably, was Charles Finney, one of those circuit riders and, and very notable in church history. The modern missions movement. The missions movement that you were a part of today, Victory Family Church, of reaching around the world with the gospel, began during the, the Second Great Awakening. It actually began in what's called the, the Haystack Revival. Yeehaw. Group of college students, a couple of guys walking through a, a hay field. There's a thunderstorm brewing. So they go and they hide under a stack of hay or bells of hay. And while they're sheltered in there waiting for the storm to pass, they just started praying. And somewhere out of that prayer moment, they all made a commitment that they would go anywhere in the world God told them to go. And out of that became then a part of this revival, this establishing of churches sending missionaries around the world. The revival stirred up righteous indignation in our nation, started to stir up a great part of our nation concerning the sin of slavery was birthed out of this second great awakening as people began to realize the truth of God and the mercies and grace of God for all mankind. Out of this came the American Bible Society, the American Sunday School Union, and the American Tract Society. When others were giving up on Christianity and thought the church couldn't be redeemed, God found some hungry people who were willing to pray and willing to be changed, and he brought another great revival. The Third Great Awakening, or it's called different, uh, by different titles, but uh, I'm going with the Third Great Awakening, took place then a few years later in the 1850s and 60s. After some years of spiritual passion, again, it's all started kind of to, to wane as, the, as everybody's moving across the frontier and settling toward the West. Uh, the catalyst for this third great awakening was a gentleman by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear. He was a businessman in New York City who decided that he was going to have prayer every Wednesday at noon at his place of business. He invited other business owners to join him. So he called his first prayer meeting on Wednesday, September 23rd, 1857 in New York City. Only a small handful of people showed up for that prayer meeting. But within three months, there were over 50,000 people gathering across the city of New York at different businesses every Wednesday at noon to pray for God to move on the nation once again. That began to spread then to Detroit and Chicago and Cincinnati. During that prayer movement and the years that that lasted, there were over 2 million people reported to come to Christ Jesus out of that season of revival. When the Civil War broke out, this third great awakening was instrumental in bringing over 350,000 Union and Confederate troops to Christ during the middle of the Civil War. The influence and the power of God in dark times can never be discounted. When the spiritual climate was void, God sent a revival. Two more revivals. The global revival of the early 1900s. 
Americans were coming overwhelmed by economic, political, and spiritual devastation that took place because of the Civil War and all of the, the rebuilding. You had the assassination of, of Abraham Lincoln, and you had the, the nation was just, just reeling in, in, in this, this grieving and in this uh, confusing time. The spiritual climate in America began to decline at that point. Suddenly, one of the greatest revivals in history exploded, and, and here's where it starts. It starts in the, in, the, in the country of Wales. And a young coal miner who works the coal six days a week feels a call to preach, so he starts preaching on Sundays. And when he starts preaching, God starts to move. Through that and then expanding that into other churches and congregations around the, the nation of Wales, we have what is called the Welsh Revival. And a great move of God across Wales, out into Europe, South Africa, India, ultimately to the United States of America. And it began to bring a, another awakening. Again, a young man who was hungry and passionate for God. It started to sweep again across American universities. Osbury College reportedly canceled, sir, canceled classes for three straight days because the kids were consumed with a passionate prayer and seeking God on campus that, that they just dismissed classes for, for three days. Portland, Oregon was so impacted that they had what was called Portland Pentecost. How many of you know Portland could use a Pentecost again? Atlanta. Stores and factories and offices, even the Supreme Court closed for a period of time in order to pray and seek God. That don't just happen, friends. That don't happen by man. That is a sovereign work of God. Atlanta could use another move of the Spirit of God. California. On the West Coast, you had the Azusa Street Revival of 1906 that changed the face of Christianity in the United States of America. Today, you're worshiping and fellowshipping together in Victory Family Church. We are uh, affiliated with and we are in fellowship with the Assemblies of God of the United States of America, the, the Fellowship of the Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God, founded in 1914, was birthed from men and women who were affected beginning in 1906 with that Azusa Street outpouring. Of the Holy Spirit, stories are told that that uh, William Seymour, the, the the preacher, would would stand up and and uh, sometimes would not even preach. He would just he would just stand there, and all of a sudden, people just started rushing to the aisles. Many times, and it was twenty four seven, twenty four seven for for a long, extended period of time. People were in that place, coming from all over the world. And there were times that William Seymour would just kneel behind the pulpit. It was just a couple of wooden crates. And, and he would kneel and put his head down inside one of those crates and just pray. And people were getting saved. People were getting healed. People were getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not because of a man, you see, because it was a sovereign move of the Spirit of God. That's revival. Azusa Street. So again, things were spiritually dead, but God wasn't finished. He sent a revival. The Jesus People Movement, and some of you said, yeah, right? Some of you, early 70s, 1970s, you got, uh, you got Jesus in the Jesus People Movement. America once again fell on dark times spiritually. Um, they say if you remember the 60s, you weren't really there, right? That kind of the same. Okay, so I was little bitty. I was born in the early 60s, so I didn't know what was going on. 
I just thought those flowers looked pretty in girls' hair, you know. But in 63, you had the assassination of John F. Kennedy. 68, you had the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. You had the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. The Vietnam War was dividing our nation greatly. You had great unrest that started as demonstrations and protests turning into riots on college campuses, again, among young people. You had the disgrace of a, of a presidency. You had racial conflict in the South. You had the height of the Cold War with the Soviet Union going on in the 60s. And, and then you had the hippie movement out on the West Coast, the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco. As it was said by Timothy Leary, the youth were turned on, tuned in, and dropped out. And the central point of it was a certain district in San Francisco known as Haight-Ashbury. Ashbury. Teens from all over the country were coming there to, to find out what this movement was about and to, to leave home and to leave their values and be a part of this new cultural revolution. Things were just getting weirded out and whacked out in the United States of America in so many capacities, emotionally and mentally and spiritually. But a young couple, husband and wife, started a, a coffee shop in the district of Haight-Ashbury called The Living Room. The coffee shop's design was these kids just want to hang out. That's what it was all about, right? We just want to hang out. And so they would hang out and drink coffee and talk. And this couple and others who were working with them that were Christians would talk about Jesus, right? I mean, everybody in that moment, everybody's mind's open to everything. They start talking about Jesus. People, kids start getting saved. Other ministries start opening up coffee houses up and down the West Coast. And this revival hits on the West Coast among these, the hippies. They call it the Jesus People Movement. They're getting saved by the tens of thousands. They're getting baptized by the thousands in the Pacific Ocean. I love the stories of how Pastor Chuck Smith uh, with Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa was caught up in all that. Calvary Chapel, a great church, a large church, very uh, traditional church, coat, tie, patent leather shoes, and guys were, gals were coming in off of the beach right across the street to see what this Jesus thing was, not wearing, guys weren't wearing shirts, coming in with their surf trunks on and no shoes, girls in their bikinis. Ooh. Things were a little uncomfortable in Calvary Chapel for a while. But they decided if Jesus was up to something, who were they to get in the way? Some of you have heard of Pastor Greg Laurie. Greg Laurie pastors a Calvary Chapel church on the West Coast. He also hosts the uh, Harvest uh, Evangelism campaigns. He just had one here at AT&T Stadium just a couple of years ago. He was one of those hippies that walked in off the beach into that church, and they loved on him and accepted him. He got, he got baptized, got filled with the Holy Spirit, called to preach. The Jesus People Movement, again, it was, it was young people, a very unlikely place among a very unlikely group of people, but Jesus found some hungry hearts, and he started to move. I wanted to share these with you so you see the faithfulness of God to respond during spiritually dead times. Hosea 6 said, let us remember that just as surely as the sun comes up, God's going to revive us. Now, for you and I, our generation, we need revival. We've been praying for revival. 
even these 30 days that we've set aside for prayer and fasting, though geared more toward praying for our nation and the election, many of those prayers have, have been about revival, the ones we prayed this morning, about reviving the church. I pray for revival all the time. And I'm always a little comfortable praying for revival because what I know I should be praying is, Lord, revive me. But I can't get, I can't get the corporate out of my mind. But it really is, Lord, revive me. What I mean by that is we must see that before revival ever becomes corporate and sweeps a nation, it sweeps a heart. One at a time. And enough embers get hot and fanned into a flame, create more fires of revival that becomes corporate, that becomes nationwide. But it, it starts with individuals. It starts starts with us personally. We have this election coming up Tuesday. And if we're not careful, and it's probably for many in our country, many Christians already gotten to this, that without knowing it or realizing it, subconsciously we have this feeling and thought that if our guy wins, we have revival. Let me just tell you, whoever your guy is will not bring revival. They will lead our nation according to policies, platforms that will harm or help our nation. But they will not bring revival. Revival will be the church. We couldn't have made that more clear during the IF series. If my people call by my name, humble themselves, pray and seek my face. God's people, the church. And that's me. And that's you. It's personal. So I was given a rude awakening by the Lord this week as I was reading some headlines and started getting a little nervous about my guy. And actually started to feel some anxiety coming up. And the Holy Spirit asked me, he said, Mark, if your guy doesn't win on Tuesday, will you still pray with the passion you've been praying for the last 30 days? Hmm. Or am I relying on my guy more than God? No matter which guy wins, our nation needs revival. And it will require hungry, passionate hearts for a move of God. And it starts with individuals. Psalm 119. I'm not going to read you the whole song because it is the longest book in the entire Bible. But let me give you some highlights out of Psalm 119 to show you this personal nature of revival. The psalmist says, revive me according to your word. Verse 37, revive me in your way. Verse 40, revive me in your righteousness. Verse 88, revive me according to your loving kindness. Verse 107, revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Verse 149, revive me according to your justice. It's personal. So here's your application. Three quick points of application for you this morning before we move into some time of worship and prayer. One, what do you do for this season of revival? You pray for personal revival. 
Not one of those revivals we reviewed historically a few moments ago started without a foundation of prayer. You see, prayer is the expression of a hungering, empty, desperate heart that knows no other thing but to call on God. And sometimes God lets people get to a point of desperation. That's how I got saved out on the West Coast just after the Jesus People Movement. It was just a crazy hunger recognizing, man, I've messed it all up. I need God. God's the only one that can get me out of this and fix this. Revival comes to those who are earnestly seeking and desiring a sovereign move of God. Nothing else but a hunger for God. God's always responded to people who cried out to him. So I ask God, why, why only prayer? Why do you only move when people pray? You already know our hearts. You already know what we need. You already know whether we're going to be receptive to it or not. Why, why do we have to pray personally for our own revival? Here's the two reasons that God gave to me why you and I have to be praying for our own personal revival. The first one is this. God needs you to know that you need him. For God to bring a personal revival, he needs you to know that you need him. That you're fully dependent on him. It's not your education. It's not your vocational training. It's not your upbringing. He needs you to know you need him because that's where he can show up. And the second one was this. God wants to know that we want him. He wants us to know we need him and he wants to know we want him. Do we want God to move or are we okay like we are? That's where young people tend to be more open to a, a revival because things are going to be different than sometimes an older generation within the church would be open to because we've become set in ways and God wants to know, do we want him? Do we want him? So, several weeks ago, the Lord dealt with me about prayerlessness. And we've tried everything. We've got Wednesday night prayer, man. We've got, uh, we do Sunday nights of praise and worship and prayer and, and less than a third of everybody shows back up. And, and so doing things different after COVID-19, trying some different things. I just felt impressed in my spirit that this was to be a house of prayer. So for the last few weeks, we'll do it again today. At the end of this message, we will be formally dismissed, but the worship team will be leading worship. These altars will be open, and you, as you feel you desire, will, can stay and pray and worship, or you can leave. And again, nobody's under condemnation. We're not checking and saying, oh, well, they must not be very spiritually hungry. No, we know you've got places to go and people to be and all that, but we're going to stay and just make an atmosphere. That's all we're doing. We're creating the opportunity for those who want to call out on God. That's all we're doing. It's not mandated that you stay. I just figure, man, why not? Rather than just cut it off at an hour and a half or whatever, hour and 20, whatever, Let's, let's just make it available. Those who want to stay can stay rather than asking you to come back another night of the week or whatever. So we just make a place of prayer and of worship. So we pray for personal revival. Secondly, we prepare. We prepare for personal revival. To pray without preparation will accomplish nothing when it comes to a supernatural move of God. 
We can pray till we're blue in the face, but unless we're willing to prepare our hearts for a move of God over us in a fresh new way, it won't happen. So we have to prepare. So I told you about that young coal miner in Wales in 1805, or I'm sorry, 1905, who preached on Sundays, worked coal mines all the other days. And, and I told you about him preaching. His very first sermon and the core of his sermons from that point that were a part of this revival were simply four things to make ready for a move of God. So it's not a formula. None of these are guarantees that God's just going to move right down in here immediately, but they seem to fit into all of these other revivals as well. But, but here's his four that I think we would all do well to understand and, and interact with. The first one, he says, confess known sin. Confess your known sin. Church, it's called repentance. It's called recognizing that we have sin in our hearts and God can't justify that and God can't bless that. He cannot move into that place that's contaminated. So he provides the blood of Jesus to purify that place in our lives so that he can move. First John says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. The word confess means to agree with. It's simply this, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, man. I know, Lord, there's, there's pride. I know, Lord, that, that there's anger. I know, Lord, there's lust. I know, Lord, I confess that to you. And I repent. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move from that, Father. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move that out of my life. As David, the great king of Israel, who was known as a man after God's own heart, committed adultery and then conspired for murder and and was eventually found out when he thought his sin was hidden. And, and he called out to God in Psalm, 9, uh, Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance. And he says, Lord, search my heart. When we extend our time of worship at the close of a service, the altars are open. Man, church, what a great opportunity to just find a place with the Lord and get very honest and say, Lord, search my heart. You want to move a God, you want a revival, you want life changed, you want your life changed, you want your church changed, you want your world changed. Lord, search my heart and show me if there's any wicked way in me. You'll be surprised. All of us will be very surprised at just how much we may harbor in our hearts that we just blow off, but God can't. God can't blow it off. So he says, confess known sin. Second, put away doubtful habits. Questionable behaviors, questionable attitudes. Well, the Bible's not real clear. Well, when in doubt. Okay, you guys never heard that? I heard crickets. When in doubt, do without. What? You guys never heard that? When in doubt, do without. Well, maybe I just maybe brought revival to all of you. <laughs> if you didn't know, well, here you go. Man, this is life-changing. When in doubt, do without. Why put it up? You know, people say, well, how close to the edge can I, can I live to the edge and still be saved? Well, that's a bad question to ask. The right question is, Lord, how do I need to be living just to, to be saved? So remove doubtful behavior. So the Holy Spirit put it to me this way. Now, 
I, I am not picking on anybody. I just know there's some things that people say, hey, the Bible's not clear, yada, yada, yada. So I'm just going to toss this. But it's not the, it's not the, the thing that I'm going to mention that's important. It's the attitude about God in the thing, okay? So I just put it in my notes here. If God asked you to give up smoking or the drink of alcohol in order to experience a deeper move of his spirit in your life, would you be willing to do that? Because if our answer is no, then our heart's not ready for revival yet. What if he asks you to give up a, a friendship that's, that's just, you know the scriptures say, bad company corrupts good character. If he asks you to cut off an association, are you willing to do that? If it means a deeper walk with him, a deeper relationship to him? If you're not, then your heart's not ready yet. You see what I'm saying? God moves on a heart that's ready. That just says, God... And that's why they humble. That's why in these prayer meetings they just humble themselves. They just lay themselves out and say, "God, whatever you want from me, whatever you need from me, put away doubtful habits." Thirdly, obey the Holy Spirit promptly. Disobedience will shut the flow of any movement of God in our lives. On more than one occasion, God says, "I desire obedience above sacrifice." Yeah, I'm glad you came to church. I'm glad you give the tithe and you give offerings to missions. But I prefer that you obey me. That you obey me fully. So the church has been given the Holy Spirit. You individually as a born-again follower of Christ have been given the Holy Spirit. He is our counselor, Jesus said, meaning he comes alongside us and he speaks to us. He guides us. Paul says, live in step with the Holy Spirit. Move as the Holy Spirit is moving. So he convicts us and he moves us and he speaks to us and he directs us and he strengthens us and empowers us to move with him into the full abundant life Jesus has for us. But if we reject that voice and we reject that leadership and we continue to want to do our own thing, God can't move there. Because where he's going to move is through his Holy Spirit that's in us. And then lastly, confess faith in Christ openly. And by that, what I believe he's telling us is we got to start seasoning our conversations with Jesus. In other words, we can't be afraid to, to be a Christ follower or to be known as a Christ follower. we gotta, we got to be open about our faith. I mean, if he tells you to, stand on a street corner or on a box and preach every Friday night. That, yes, if he tells you to do that, obey the Holy Spirit. But I'm talking about just the fact that, that the church has to get up and be the church. We serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he may have been more meek and mild when he came the first time than he will be the second time. Because the second time he comes with a sword. And he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He came the first time as the lamb of God. I think what's being said is, Christian, be, be bold in your faith. Live it out. Live it out. Here's what I know. In grade school, they used to teach us, 
If your clothes catch on fire, you what? Stop, drop. Okay, see, you all know that one. Stop, drop, and roll. Don't run because the oxygen will fan the flame. What do you do in a campfire if you want the flame to start back up again? You, you blow air onto it. You want the Holy Ghost fire to grow from a, from a spark into a flame? You run with him. You run with him. You acknowledge his activity in your life, and you just live his life in everything you're doing. Your words, your attitudes, your actions, your, your motives, and your desires, they're just spirit-led because you are running with the Spirit. As Paul says, staying in step with the Spirit, that's where revival's going to come. Steve, God has to wake you and shake you and pick you up and turn you upside down and spin you and drop kick you to the 30-yard line to get you going. It's not going to happen. He wants to know that you want him. And there he brings revival. And then lastly, practice personal revival. That kind of goes along with what we were just saying. Practice personal revival. Respond to the Holy Spirit. Dedicate yourself to personal holiness. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 1. Let's read it together. It says this. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends... Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Perfecting holiness. Everything that contaminates body and spirit. Let us purify ourselves. That word purify means to separate. Let us be the ones who cut ourselves off from that so that we leave room for the holy activity of God. Side note. I skipped Habakkuk on purpose. You guys hurt my feelings so much the first time that I just decided not to even go there. I'm kidding. We didn't have time to try to dig through and find out where it is because I can't tell you which two books it's in between. I have a post-it note stuck in there. But because of time, I didn't go to Habakkuk and another verse of Scripture. But they're on the app. They're in our sermon notes on the app. If you've got the app, you can see them there. So why do I believe this is the season and time for another revival? Well, it's been 50 years since that Jesus people movement. That means there's a generation of people, those of you who got saved and those of us that were growing up during that season of time, we are the grandparents. So we have another generation behind us and a second generation coming up behind us. Those two generations have not seen a large-scale, what we would call great awakening in their generation. So it's, 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 it's time. It's time. Now, it's a God thing, you know, God's timing, but... I would say the signs are pointing. I would almost say this, that there, are, there is a, a, a time and a season in which revival will happen, I believe. Some, some don't think that it's, it's in the scriptures. I think it is. That there will be another great awakening across the face of the earth before the rapture of the church. Why do I think it? There's a couple of reasons. One is, Peter makes it clear the only reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because God is patient. He, he really doesn't want anybody to perish. He would prefer that everyone come to, to, to Christ. So he's waiting. But it means the heart of the Father is he wants more people saved. Revival does that. The second reason is Romans chapter 11. Let me set this one for you. In Romans 11, Paul is talking about Israel and how the Gentile church is grafted in 
I told you two weeks ago when we talked about Israel, the church has not replaced Israel. Israel is still in covenant with God. I do believe the seven-year tribulation period is God specifically dealing. It will affect the entire world, but it is God specifically dealing with Israel to bring them to repentance and call on the name of Jesus as Messiah. Now, we live in what is termed the, 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 the age of the Gentiles, or the Gentile, the Gentile age. If you're not Hebrew, you're a Gentile. Jesus came first, he said, for the Jews. He came, there were those who believed on him, and there are still Jews today who believe on Jesus. But as a whole, the, the nation has not accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. So from the coming of Christ, particularly his resurrection, and then the pouring out on the day of Pentecost, this has been a time where God has opened a door for the Gentiles. Now, God will always, even in the tribulation, give opportunity for non-Jews, Gentiles, to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. But more specifically, he's allowing this incredible opportunity for Gentiles. One of the most challenging things to the apostles was when God started saving non-Jews. And they had to deal with the conflict. How were they going to address that? But then they couldn't argue. The Gentiles are getting the same Holy Spirit we got in that upper room that day. So the Gentile age. Now watch what Paul says. And we're going to close with this. Romans eleven twenty five. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. In other words, just because God's moving on Gentiles right now doesn't mean you get to, to exalt yourself above Israel. He says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part, watch this, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, when God sees that the full number of Gentiles is completed, now he will move to working and dealing with Israel. That's the tribulation period. And from what I read in scripture and, and, and hold to and believe is that we, the church, will be taken prior to the tribulation. Where I go with all that full circle is back to this. There's got to be a move of God to finish out the Gentile age before those final events of the end time come to fruition, which at the end of that seven years is the second coming of Christ. And so I believe the season is now. After what we saw last week about America and the possibilities, the only good possibility of why America was not in the end times listed in the Bible would simply be that we were all, so many of us in this nation, raptured that the nation lost its influence and was not a big player in the field of the world at, the, at that time. That's what I hope it was. I hope it wasn't one of the others. So I'm going to ask you this, and then we're going to pray. We're going to open the altars for prayer and worship, and, and just you can come and go then as, as you need. But I'm going to ask you this, because revival is personal. It starts with us. Have you lost your passion for Jesus? If you did the heart search this morning, has your first love for Jesus waned? Is it possible that worldliness has crept into a stronger place of influence in your life, that, that you, you are more controlled by worldly ideology and worldly desires and things than, than you are the activity of the Spirit of God in you?
not pointing fingers. I'm, I don't even know. I'm, I'm not saying, well, I think it's you and you and you. I'm saying we all, we all do well to search our hearts. What needs to change for God to bring an awakening to your spirit and soul? What in your life needs to change? Then now's the time to start changing. Because if God's ready and if this is the season for revival, you want to be in on it. You want to be a part of it. You want to be caught up in it. Then, then now's the time, the time to make the change. Now's the time to seek him for personal revival. So we're going to, I'm going to pray. As I pray, the worship team will be coming up. And again, we're just going to make that our formal dismissal. And then if you want to stay, find you a place here at the altar somewhere. But, but this is a time to just seek the Lord. This is a time to, to go beyond just the structured service order that we have printed out and, and just, just wait before the Lord. Talk to him. As the worship team leads us in worship, you may choose to sing some of the songs, I would suggest that there come a point in your time of waiting and being still that, that you let them sing, helping create that atmosphere of, of the Holy Spirit in the room, and you talk to the Lord for a while. Maybe something in one of the songs will spark something in you to, to speak to the Lord. But I think we make it a time this morning, I would encourage you to make it a time of, of letting the Lord search our hearts. Let's make sure we're ready to be a part of the next awakening when God sends.